Hey, this is Overcoming the Odds podcast. I'm your host, Josh Coyne. Today's episode, I talked to Dr. Rocio Passion about what it was like growing up in Colombia in the 80s, how she learned how to speak English after moving to the U.S., almost being deported and losing her scholarship, and how she became a doctor. I was just about to turn 10 when I came to the States. I did not know English. I learned it within six months, and I learned it by myself because my mom doesn't speak English and my aunt doesn't speak English, so... She was always hardworking. A lot of the Colombians wanted the easy way out. And cocaine at that time was the easy way out. As I was in my freshman year, I was essentially kicked out of school because I was illegal. All that and more with Dr. Rocky, as her friends call her. This podcast is brought to you by Gaming VPN. If you don't have a VPN... You should definitely download Gaming VPN for, well, gaming and streaming. Stay secure online all the time. It's only available on iOS. Go to gamingvpn.tech, T-E-C-K. I'm Josh Coyne, and this is Overcoming the Odds Podcast, Episode 4. Thank you for hopping on here with me and, um, you know, joining this without even a prerequisite phone call of any idea what you're getting yourself into. So <laughs> thank you for that. I've, I have found this will be my third or fourth interview I've done with people. And I found that if I give them a heads up in a phone call, that it's not as authentic coming through because we've already talked. Right. So like we basically do the interview before the interview. So by the time we get on the, on this, it's like, oh, we already know what we're getting into. So I have all the questions. I have all the answers. It's just not authentic. So sure. yeah, I agree so, with you, actually. I like it. It's more uh, organic. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. My my background, real quick, quick little little story, what made me or start this project, I guess, right, is that I was born with CF, right? So I've got, I've got a lung disease and I've had CF my entire life. And, you know, cystic fibrosis uh, kills people, right? You know that. I mean, like, I'm lucky to be 40 years old or almost 40 years old let alone lucky enough to be this healthy at that age, right? So I've made it this far. I'm healthier than I've ever been. And it's not for lack of trying, but new medication plus being very regimented in what I've what I've done in my lifestyle. And that story alone, I feel as though like I could get in much deeper about that, but that would help some other children or or teens or young adults who are struggling with this disease to be like, all right, it's it's not the end of the world. There are people who do live a good life with this. It's not a death sentence. So by me being able to tell my story of like how I got this far, what I've done to stay this healthy could help other people, right? Either if they don't have CF, just somebody who has a terminal illness. It sucks. It's terrible, but there isn't, it's not terminal tomorrow, right? So like you can still live your life. That that's kind of where I am with this. It's like, what what can you bring to the table? What do you want to share? I know you've come from you know a different background than myself, that's for sure, and really done a lot with your life to this point. You know, what was that like? What's it like growing up for you? And then how did you become this amazing eye doctor? And 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 where you are now? Like, where's that journey? How did that happen? It started with my mother. My dad left South America, Colombia, when I was very young. I don't remember my dad at all uh, growing up. So I was raised by very strong women. We were, I was poor. I just didn't know it. But I know that my mom 
and she only has a first grade education, she always, she was always hardworking. I remember her selling um, in Colombia shampoo and conditioner and nail polish. And she always had her little gigs. And I do just remember my mom working hard, although no matter what it was. And once she knew that her relationship with my dad was over, because she had found out that he had um, set up his life in the States and she had decided to leave Colombia. And thankfully, my aunt had been in Northeast uh, Rhode Island and um, she had welcomed us. And that was back in 1980. And little did I know that I was going to end up in Central Falls, Rhode Island. So when people ask why Rhode Island? And I, the honest answer is because that's where all the factories were. They don't speak English. They're unskilled. So that's where the attraction was, the textile companies, the Hasbros, the uh, the toy companies, the boxing, the packaging. And that's what attracted all those immigrants from the early 1980s. It started in Colombia. Then at around 10, I was in Rhode Island, Central Falls. And Although that was a better quality of life, little did I know that Central Falls at that time was in Reader's Digest as the cocaine capital of the Northeast with all the Colombians. And, and it, it, was, it was factual. A lot of the Colombians wanted the easy way out and cocaine at that time was the easy way out. And once again, my mom doesn't drive to this day, doesn't speak English, but she still managed to pay someone to drive her to New York and buy merchandise and bring it back to Rhode Island and sell in addition to her factory job. So I think my journey, in essence, in reference to my work ethic, was the foundation of that was my mother and my grandmother and my aunt. Although we were poor in Colombia, I remember she she would send me to private school, and I we I could not afford what what was interesting. It's sad, but it's it just says a lot about my mother. I remember the richer, wealthier kids having lunch, and I didn't have lunch. But yet, to her, education was the the force, the drive, and and. Although she's like, listen, we cannot afford to give you lunch, but I can afford to give you the education. It was just instilled in me. So you said that she doesn't drive still. She didn't drive then. And she would hire people to pick up something from New York. And then she would sell that while she was doing her factory job. Yes, she would actually drive to New York with them. In other words, yeah, she would drive with the driver and they would go to New York and she would buy merchandise. Like textile merchandise, like for textiles or for what? Like what was the merchandise? No, no. Uh, I'm talking about clothing, perfumes, anything to do with home goods. She was like the original home goods <laughs> from the house. And she would sell to all the Colombian Hispanic neighbors because at that time it was more like now Central Americans, South Americans, that type of thing. Yeah. So she's hustling, hustling on the side too. She's That's right. Picking up what she can get in New York and then sell it to all the, the Colombian neighbors and the South American neighbors in Rhode Island and making the extra money on the side. It's great. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Sorry. So, Sorry to interrupt. So continue. I just needed to figure out what that was about. Right. So good for her. Yeah, it, it was good for her. Yeah. And now going through high school in Central Falls, once again, I, I just didn't know. I just knew that it was a better life than Colombia. So it was, it was a step 
in the right direction. I was um, a very good student. I, I loved math. I loved the sciences. And I remember because it's such a poor community, it's one square mile, but it's densely populated by minorities, Portuguese, Colombians, and, and all that. So, so that was my upbringing once I was in the States. I did not know English. I learned it within six months. And I learned it by myself because my mom doesn't speak English and my aunt doesn't speak English. So and how old were you at that time? I was just about to turn 10 when I came to the States. So I must have been like 11 at the most. We remained in Rhode Island until I graduated from University of Rhode Island. But a lot of things happened in between. The, the first thing is I have the highest respect for teachers. So I know they were underpaid and I know it wasn't a good district, but a lot of teachers recognize the good students. And I remember one French teacher wrote on one of my little essays that I had written, he had said, he had written, it's hard to fly like an eagle when you're amongst turkeys. And I did not understand. I was a child. I was like, what does that mean? And, and, and he was really the first person that was non-Hispanic to say, you're gifted. You, there's something in you and you, you need to excel. And, um, and it was the teachers. They would stay with me after school. It was the teachers that would go and with translators uh, to talk to my mom and say, can, can she attend summer school? So because of that, I started taking courses in college. <laughs> so there I am, like 14 years old, and, and now I'm at URI. They would send me to places like Phillips Academy, which is more of a, a, a boarding school for um, wealthier people. And so that's that's what started shifting my my thinking. I'm like, okay, so there there's a way out. You know, the way out is through education, right? Is that you're Right. You're outsmarting the system, so to speak, right? You have to, to to learn the way to educate yourself to then either join the system or beat it. And that's pretty much what you figured out at a young age. Yes. Which is great. Yeah. I mean, not a lot of people figure that out ever. <laughs> so let alone as a, as a child. Yeah, it, it was difficult. Um, one of the hardest things, and it's it makes me sad because I just didn't know better, but I graduated from high school and top honors and I struggled and I tried so hard. And then I got admitted to a number of schools, but I ended up choosing University of Rhode Island because it was a full ride through this program called Talent Development. And it was um, geared towards minorities because they know that most minorities don't have high SAT scores, although they they do well. So it's more like an enrichment program. And I was all excited. And, and I started my freshman year at URI. But what I didn't tell you is that we came here illegally. So it was difficult to, to become legal in the States. Yeah. I mean, and it's, still not easy, right? I mean, it's still a difficult thing to do. And even if you've been here for, you know, I don't know the exact rules and I'm an immigration expert, but, you know, even if you've been here for X amount of years, you're still not counted as even, uh, you know, foreign alien. It's just, it's just ridiculous how they, how they they do that. But 
you know, I'm not, I'm not the immigration expert. And uh, <laughs> just the fact that you were able to get here and stay here and get that far without officially being a legal resident, you know, it just goes to show again, like people that are non-US citizens need a chance, period. You know, like you just do, right? There's, you are a doctor, you've helped countless people. And if you weren't allowed here for any reason and you didn't figure it out to get here on your own, you might not have been able to help those people. Thinking about other people that aren't allowed here or have kicked, get kicked back and don't have the the means to fight it or the education to to know how to become a citizen and what those people could have contributed if they weren't sent back, right? It's just boggles my mind, but that's where we are, unfortunately. That's where we are. Yeah. 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 So what was sad about that situation is that my legal status at the time, I graduated from high school in 86. Um, So we're talking about 87, 88. My legal status at the time, I believe Reagan was the president. So he had given amnesty, but there is a process just like everything else, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a process of applying. So therefore, as I was in my freshman year, I was essentially kicked out of school because I was illegal. Right. So they withdrew all my financial aid. And guess who came to my rescue? Uh, a drug dealer. And, and he said, I can pay. You know, that is what you are paying for tuition is nothing to me. And so I was happy because I didn't know better. <laughs> And I told my mom, hey, listen, so such and such can pay for uh, what I owe. And she said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And, and I was mad at my mom. Sure. And I said, but I'm smart and I work so hard and I'm like, I'm full scholarship. And she said, absolutely not. You're going to get out. You're going to work. You're going to wait for your papers to come in. And someday you'll thank me. I'm sure she was right. You know, and like if you had gone that route, what would you have to owe this person? Right. Like if you. All right. You're, it's not free. It's not free. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. Not free. So with that said, I stayed out. I stayed out a year and a half. I mean, I worked at a nursing home. And at the nursing home, I met the director of the nursing home owner was also a nurse. She was an educator. And she was uh, someone from Northeastern University uh, in Massachusetts. For some reason, I had said to her, you know, here, she had asked me, you know, why you were in college, why you were applying to be a nurse's aide. And at the time, I think the minimum wage was like $350 or $5. And I said, because I don't have my papers. And she actually, she said, I'm not supposed to hire you, but she did. She hired me. I met the right people throughout my journey. Right. Right. And, and it's, it's crazy to think that you were given a full scholarship, you had proven yourself, and still, even after having been here as a child for, from age 11 till 17, let's call it 18, maybe when you graduated high school, they still wouldn't allow you to continue education, go through school, and become a citizen just based on the time alone and your, your accomplishments. They still had to go through the process and have all that stuff stripped away, which is ridiculous. But, you know, it happened. Ridiculous, but it happened. It, it happens. And I'm I'm not the only one that it happened. Right. To. That was my journey. And I was able to finally go back 
to URI. You know, my counselors were pleasantly surprised, actually. They were, they were shocked and they were like, Rocky's back. And then they said, whatever we can do to make this journey easier for you. And, and that's what I did. So did they accept your scholarship the second time around? Did you were able to keep it? When I talked to them, they said, your, your money will be here waiting for you because it's yours. So yeah, it was a full ride at URI. And I was a triple major. And I graduated with honors. Of course. <laughs> what, were the, what were the majors? What were your three? They were uh, Spanish biology and uh, chemistry. Okay. A minor in chemistry, yep. All right. So you, you finished college, you get your degrees, and then from there, what happens? From there, at the time, then I was in Newport, Rhode Island. I was dating someone from Newport, Rhode Island, um, completely different background than mine. Uh, and he he was actually the one that was the chemistry major, and that's how I ended up with my minor. And he was the one that had introduced me to all the different possibilities in reference to medical school. Do you want to go into podiatry school? Do you want to go into optometry school? Do you want to go international? So that's, he was the one that introduced me to all that. Uh, and I ended up applying. Uh, and that was back in 1993. That's when I started uh, my journey here in PA. You go through high school, you get citizenship, you finish college, you start medical school, move to PA. And then from after Pennsylvania, finishing medical school, you are now an optometrist. Yes. Okay. So then from there, what's been the second half, right? Because the first half, we started the first half. Now we know you're an adult at this point, right? Right. What, what's, what's adulthood like for, for young Rocky, Dr. Rocky? <laughs> well, uh, then that's a very good question. You're very wise by what you had said, the premise of the conversation, because you had said success. Success, not just material, but emotional success. So I had accomplished the success in reference to prestige and the degrees that I earned and all that, but I was still lacking the emotional success. While I was finishing the, uh, my optometry school, there are certain boards that you have to take and the toughest board to pass for us, because there are four, is the first one. It's just the toughest. It's about a day and a half and you have to get a certain score to pass. And that was the toughest one for me to pass because it's all multiple choice. And a lot of it is known that a lot of the minorities have issues with understanding and comprehending. So that was one of the ones that was really difficult for me. And I remember like really trying, you needed a score of 300 and I, I got a 299 <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> uh. and a 293 <laughs> uh. and a 289. Oh, it just kept getting worse. Yes. And I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm not going to pass these boards. And I had passed all the other ones, right? right? All the medical ones, all the clinical ones, all the oral ones. I had passed every single one except this one, the written one. So at that time, we're talking about 1998, um, 1999 now. There, there's a point to the story. So my mom was traveling to Columbia. And she wanted for me to come with her and I couldn't. And I was just like, mom, I really, really have to pass these boards that she couldn't understand, right? She, there was no reason why she would. She's like, I don't understand. You've been studying all this time. And I was just like, well, you just don't get it. I was like, I need to stay. I cannot go with you. 
So anyhow, she's traveling to Columbia uh, from, I believe, JFK, New York. And we're talking about she had left. We had left in 1980. She had only been to Columbia one previous time. Little does she know that on the same flight is my dad. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's that's a hell of a coincidence, huh? That is a hell of a coincidence. I'm like, how does that happen? Yeah. So she didn't know. He didn't know. So anyhow, they both get there and she's confused because obviously in Colombia, the whole family's waiting for both of them. And they're like, wow, they're on the same flight. What are the odds of that? And they had not seen each other for, since 1976 because he had traveled once to Colombia. Anyhow, they get there. And of course, he's going to ask about me, right? Sure. Um, I mean, you would hope. Exactly. And then she she had said, um, well, she's studying for her boards, but I happened to have already been working. I had like my first business card. So she hands him my business card and I was working at Jean's Hospital at the time. And then she said, yeah, she's studying for her boards and he just sobs. And then he says, the one I supported the least is the one that accomplished the most. At least he recognized that. Yeah. So, so from then on, my dad had tried to kind of get in touch with me. He's like, Oh, can I see her? And so my mom had said, well, she's, she's one tough cookie. (laughs) 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 Uh, It's like, you know, uh, I need her permission type of thing. Uh, Good for your mom. You know, that's good for her to, to say that instead of just here's, here's her card and you can call her all you want. You know I mean? Good for her to recognize that it's up to you. It's your decision, ultimately. Then I had said to my mom, like, Mom, why now? I'm, 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 I'm an adult and, and, and I have accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And, and I just I, I felt that um, I was like, there's no need for him now. Mm-hmm. And once again, my mom is very smart, very spiritual. Then she had said to me, you know, maybe that's why you have problems in your relationships. <laughs> Thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's like, maybe that's why you're so tough on what you want from men in your life. Maybe this will be helpful. <laughs> so that's where the emotional growth came in. And mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, I'm going to try this. Right. So now so, it becomes a healing, a healing emotionally of your past, right? And trying to, right. and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's going to be more of like emotionally healing from your disconnect from him or like an abandonment feeling almost, or like you were left and correct the hell with you. Right. It kind of is how right. I would feel if I were you personally. That's right. So that's right. And, and my point was, well, I don't need you now, but as it turns out, his wife, her name is Julie. They have one son, which is my brother. He was at our, my wedding, Luis. Mm-hmm. And it was through my brother actually that I was able to connect with my dad. And the reason why that is, is because my brother has lost three siblings from his mom's first marriage. So my brother is an only child from that marriage and I'm an only child. He had said to me at the time when we first met, my nieces were young. He actually said to me, I want my daughters to have someone to look up to. And it was, then I just felt, you know what? I, I can do that. I can do that because, and then I, I put myself in their shoes and like, cause no, I did not have that growing up. So now I can do it for someone else. 
Yeah. And it's got to be really like emotionally grounding as well to, to, to recognize, and especially to have him recognize that, you know, like out of all the people in the world, fictional or in reality, he says that to you and says, you, I want you to be the role model for my kids. You know, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. So. Yep. And then through that journey, um, I've been able to get close to my dad. And now I call my dad, if not every day, every other day. And, um, and I see, I did write a letter to him about the pain I felt. Um, and that was very healing for me. Yeah, I, I, I feel like, you know, that letter that you wrote, probably did help a lot. I mean, I'm assuming you didn't just write it and put it in a desk. You sent it to him. I did send it to him. Yeah, good. And you should have. So, you know, and that way you guys are on the same page and you can, you could have written that letter on your own terms when you wanted to without having any interruptions. And then he can read it at the same time. Like he can read it on his own terms and sit and think about it without having you in front of him and without having to immediately respond. Right. So like, it's kind of like a therapy for both of you. You Yes. You, you said your piece and he can accept it or, or can choose not to. And clearly he had chosen to accept it and, you know, you guys worked it out and that, that really is, is powerful and important and not, not something a lot of families can do, you know, like, especially families that have been broken up that, that far and that distance of time and space can't really, can't always, I should say, come to a good, happy ending like that and be able to be a grown adults and talk talk out the problems, right? And talk out what the issue was right. at the time. Good for you both to have been able to do that and to have a great relationship now, it seems. Yes, we do. That's an awesome thing. You know, I've noticed from my own standpoint, granted, I, I don't have anywhere similar to family like yours, but my own personal experience is that I've noticed in the past year and a half, really, like I've started doing some therapy because uh, I was having some anger issues and really super depressed before the pandemic. And it, it, I was really against therapy overall. Like I didn't want to do it. I, I had gone through therapy as a child and it just wasn't anything I was interested in. But as an adult, it's really helped me get rid of these, these demons, if you will, and get rid of like some of this anger and, and be able to accept where I am and forgive people for things they didn't conscientiously know they were harming me by doing, you know? Granted, it's not, you know, a letter to a person who I had a problem with or who I felt did me wrong, but it is still a way that I was able to get rid of some of this emotional baggage on my own. Right. And it, it's definitely helps. I, I'm all for it. If you can find the right person to help you with it, then it helps. So, but enough about me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so continuing here now, you guys have a great relationship and you've mended some wounds and you're, I'm, I'm assuming your mother's still alive. We talked about that, right? She's still living. Yes. And she's in, where does she live these days? Rhode Island. And your father lives where? Connecticut. Connecticut. Do they talk? Yes. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I'm glad to hear that. They get along and... They get along. They're really good friends. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, I guess, you know, if you look at the history of, of Colombia, especially in the 80s, right? Like hell of a time to get out of out of the country you know like it was either you get out or you're you're stuck there with the cartels and dealing with drugs and a terrible terrible uh way of life right so you had two choices and it seems like your parents picked the right decision to get out regardless of what the struggle would be coming to the states 
Right. No, it was ultimately it was the right decision. Yeah. So good for them to figure that out. I mean, your dad did it in kind of a crap way of doing things, but good for him. He still did it. And you guys, you know, made up. All right. So moving forward now. So you what's what's life like for Dr. Rocky? I mean, I know you got a different practice now. You fill me in here because I don't want to just spitball and be wrong. So tell me, <laughs> tell me what I'm missing. Back in 99, I started working at um, Negri John Lee Eye Associates. So I, I was at the same practice for about 20, 21 years. And during the pandemic, my second practice, because we had separated from the original partner, he had to let us all go. Um, so it was my first time ever being unemployed. I did not even know what to do. And I just sat there. It was a very humbling experience, but I was one of many. Uh, luckily, we had savings and all that. And and so at that time, that's when I had said, you know what, I I never considered leaving that practice. What else is out there? So that's when I um, when I said, well, let me just look up my uh, CV and and bring it up to date and and see what else. And I reached out to colleagues. Um, within forty eight hours, I had three Zoom meetings. That's great. <laughs> it was scary, and that's how I ended up at the new practice where I'm at. Um, so I still work at the old practice once a month. The new practice, completely different. It's more of a subspecialty. It's been a, a steep exponential learning curve when it comes to that, but I'm all about that. And I've been with them now for almost seven months. So um, that's where I'm at right now. Good. Congratulations. That's pretty, that's pretty Thank awesome. You. And, and I can only imagine because like I, I'm, I haven't had an actual real job ever. I've only been doing my own thing most of my life and, you know, running my own companies and not working for other people. I had one full-time job once and they fired me in three months. So, um, so it didn't <laughs> last very long. So I can, I can understand your point of view of like never being unemployed is terrifying, but to, to me, the opposite of going to a place 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours a week is terrifying. So right. like it, it's probably the same feeling of like, okay, yeah. I'm not used to this. What do I do? How, how do I, how do I change my situation? How do I respond to this? And how do I continue living, but different, right? Cause it's, it's a security issue, right? Like for you and for me, if I had a job 60 hours a week, 40 hours a week, it's still a security issue because all the other stuff I was filling that time with is gone. You know, all of my other companies and projects and things like this gone versus you where you had that and then now it's gone. So you have, you had filled your time and then financially you were set, you know, making money and then that's gone too. So it's terrifying on, on both ends. What do you do when life changes that quickly? But I think you made a great decision of, of contacting people, you know, and figuring out plan B immediately. And obviously it worked out. I mean, do you feel as though the new practice is, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say better, but it seems like it's a whole different whole different type of thing for you, right? It's like just a different experience altogether. Different experience. Um, I I was happy at the old practice, but I I just didn't realize I had plateaued clinically. Mm -hmm. So this one, this one has allowed me to grow more as a clinician. So I'm thriving um, and I do like it. Yeah, good. And good. yep. He's more into the philanthropy, um, which is what I always wanted to do anyhow. So that's how we're becoming involved with community volunteers in medicine. 
now it's it's um I'm not retiring anytime soon, but mid-career, now um I feel like I'm able to be in the process to start giving back. So tell me, tell me more about this community. Uh what did you call it? Community? It's called CVIM, Community Volunteers in Medicine. I would assume it's exactly how it sounds, right? Is that you volunteer your time and your expertise to help underprivileged people with whatever they may need medically, right? Correct. Great. Okay. So I'm glad I nailed that one. If I didn't, it would be a sad day. Um, so so tell me more about that then. How's that work? I thought, I, I, I just met them around December and I was ready to go. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go in reference to how does this work? But I just wanted to understand the process. And little did I know that their equipment, their ophthalmology equipment is very primitive. The slit lamp, which is more like our microscope, is not working well. They don't. They check vision in the hallway, and there's no privacy for. I know there are migrants and they're illegal, but as as a, they're still patients, and as patients, that's the way I was. I I don't care what your background is, but you. I need to take care of you, and you have rights. So that was one of the things that I I talked to them about. I said, you know, something's just. They need more privacy. We need to do this in an examining room and examining lane. And it's going to take me half an hour with your equipment to do one exam when I can do two to three exams in half an hour. So then I became more involved in getting grants and money to um, get equipment, the proper equipment, so that we can conduct the proper exam, eye exam. And that's what we're working on. There's a lot of things that came up at once for me when you were speaking. But uh, one of the things not specifically related to the CVIM, but more so as a doctor, right? As, as you're practicing, because you've been practicing medicine for how long at this point, right? Early, like late nineties. So yes. 20 something years, right? Yeah. 20, it'll be 22 years. Yep. This okay. summer. Yeah. So as time has changed and the medical advances have come, I have personally found that younger physicians in today's world are more about testing and more about the numbers of what the machines tell you versus what the experience of the physician can tell you, right? So like, for example, the machinery and the equipment that this place has that is outdated, you you need new equipment because you can work faster and see more people. I get that. But as a physician who's been practicing for 20 plus years prior to the new equipment, are you able to maybe with optometry, it's different, but are you able to rely on your skills and your experience more so than the equipment and say, you know, these people are patients. They're not just numbers with tests. Correct. Now the equipment I'm referring to are diagnostic equipment. So for me to be able to diagnose you properly, I need to have the proper tools to do that. So for example, can I do a refraction, a simple checkup for glasses to come up with your numbers in your refraction? Can I do that with manual lenses? Absolutely. Is it going to take me longer to do it that way? Yes. Versus if you have a four-opter with all the lenses in, I'm able to do that same procedure a lot quicker. Right. I see. Because it, it's built in. Correct. Got it. So, all right. So then let's go back to your your involvement with this group, right? So they're mostly immigrants that you're working with? Yes, that's what I've been told. I have not worked for them yet, um, but they they mostly um, 
Kenneth Square, um, mostly Mexican, Central American, undocumented, un under or no insurance whatsoever. And, and that's what the service is for. Okay. Yeah. And then where's the funding go or come from, right? You said you're, you're doing like fundraising or um, grants. Our group right now, we are reaching out to all the pharmaceutical reps that we know of, like Zeiss, so that if they have equipment that they're no longer using, I'm also reaching out to my school. And then if need be, the practice will come up with the funds to purchase new equipment. Let me just get this straight too, because you have three things going on from what I'm understanding, and if, if that's incorrect. So you have your old job, right? Once a month. You have your new job, which is a different different practice than the CVIM. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And mm -hmm. then you are also helping out with this group. Yes. Awesome. And okay. I, yeah. And I also, um, I signed up for um, having uh, externs or interns from school. Uh, so I will be doing that probably um, in, in a year. Cause I used to do that at the old practice where yeah. we have students um, with us so that we can teach them how to become better clinicians. That makes sense. I was a little confused there for a moment if your new job was the CVIM or if it was a separate thing, but it's separate. Kind of separate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've also noticed that just from my own life and, you know, Milena is a Spanish speaker. Her father is a Spanish speaking physician or retired physician. These undocumented workers are terrified of doing anything because they don't want to be called out and sent home, right? So they're not going to go see physicians. They don't have insurance. They don't want to make appointments because they don't know. They're afraid that somebody is going to get them when they're at the appointment, you know, or rat them out. So how is it that the people are able to find the CVIM, feel secure to make an appointment and then, you know, get the Medicaid, the medical treatments they need without worrying they're going to be sent home? I think CVIM has outreach programs. And I know there's also an Eagles uh, van that does um, free eye exams. So I think the community as a whole knows that they're protected there and that they're safe there. Okay. That makes so sense. So I think that's how that works. So, I mean, you got a lot going on, obviously, and, and you've, <laughs> you're, you're giving back now to the community and being a Spanish speaking physician helps a lot, I'm sure. Right. Cause yes, definitely. Uh, it, it does. I know it's helped my father-in-law immensely be able to talk to many people, you know, that, and help and help many people, right. That just would otherwise not even bother if they couldn't communicate with their, with their doctor. So good for you. That's pretty awesome. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Um, well, thank you. Is there anything else you want to add about your, you know, your story at this point, your, your journey to where you are now or what else you're doing or anything else that we didn't touch on? I think we touched on a lot of things. We did. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So let me ask you this last question then. So what, what would you tell your younger self, like pick an age, right? Like the most struggle you've had, was it you were struggling because you lost your scholarship, lost your scholarship based on government bureaucracy? or when you moved the country or, you know, some other point in your life where it was looking pretty, pretty dicey and pretty tough. You know, what was, what would you tell that, that younger version of yourself? What would I tell them? I have to say, I was very lucky to have my mom because my mom told me at that time, exactly what I would tell myself now um, which is, it's going to be okay. 
you have to have faith. You got to have faith that it will get better and that there's always a way and that with each obstacle, there's a lesson to be learned that whatever lesson that may be will be useful for something else that will happen to you again in life. So that's, and that's what my mom had said to me. And I just didn't believe it at that time, but um, she was, she was right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she absolutely was. So thanks. Thanks mom. You're right. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Um, So cool. No, I, I appreciate you obviously spending time with me. It is an amazing story. And, and like I said, like people need to hear this, right? Like they, there are people who could be in a very similar situation who are, you know, undocumented immigrants from wherever and feeling like they're just not going to get anywhere. Right. And struggling daily, whatever it might be, there's gotta be somebody who this story could help. Right. So I, that's my hope for this whole podcast is just helping people if it's if it helps one person i'm happy that's it that's great and you just so, came up with it right yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> oh it's my brain it works weird sometimes so and you know melena melena has been pushing me for years to tell my story because same reason like she's like oh you could totally help people with the story you know and like you've struggled a lot in life and you're lucky to be alive which i am and i never saw it that way because i wasn't really I wasn't interested in telling my telling my story. You know, for me, it was denial. Like denial was better because if I could deny the disease, then it then it wasn't then it wasn't there, right? I wouldn't have to deal with the fact that I should be dead. By all means, medically, I should be dead, but I'm not, and I have really great medication now, like a whole new thing, and it's potentially made my life expectancy another forty years. So I figured this was the time. This was the time to do it because I've made it this far without that medicine. And if I can help somebody else struggling with terminal illness, then great. Then I can tell them what, what I've done to get this far. And it was all, it was all because of her. She said, your story is great. People need to hear it. So if my story is great, there's other people like you who have great stories that people need to hear about. So here we are. <laughs> well, it's a, good, it's a cycle. <laughs> good for you. I know it is a cycle. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. So, well, so, thank you for including me. Absolutely. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. And I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Thanks. See ya. <laughs> so once again, I want to thank Dr. Rocky for telling her story. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you learned a little bit. Maybe have some more compassion next time you see an illegal worker or Spanish-speaking person doing the best they can with what they have available to them. It's all about education and the importance of education to better us all. So on that note, stay well, be good to each other. See you on the next one. Hey, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, hit me up. You can always get me on my website, overcomingtheodds.co. And as always, if you know anybody who would be great for the podcast, send them my way. This podcast was brought to you by Gaming VPN. If you don't have a VPN, you should definitely download Gaming VPN for, well, gaming and streaming. Stay secure online all the time. It's only available on iOS. Go to gamingvpn.tech, T-E-C-K. This has been a Robot Mouse production. If you like what you heard, please give me a five-star rating and tell your friends about the show. All right, have a great day.